Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Bruce Carnegie-Brown, President of CMI and Chairman of Lloyd's of London. Good evening, everyone. Always good to see you here. Um, I'm Jason Sprague, a managing consultant, and I focus on the next coming uh, autonomous revolution. Um, but more importantly, I've served on the CMI board for some time after the joy of doing my MBA here in the business school. I'm very pleased that the CMI has been one of the original uh, distinguished speaker address partners, and I'm very thankful to the university and the business school for that opportunity. Uh, before we get on to our speaker of the night, let me share with a little bit about our CMI Southwest. Uh, yesterday we had our annual conference. It was on the topic of technology and improving leadership and management. Leadership will always remain about people, but our organizational uh, environment is changing with digital transformation, greater deployment of technology, and must and we must always make quicker and more important decisions. To share some forthcoming plans about the CMI Southwest, uh, we are piloting our first member hub here in Bristol in this forthcoming year. This will allow timely in-person engagements uh, on topics that challenge us to, to augment us and uh, help us with our continuous learning. Uh, if you're not a member of the CMI, please consider joining. It's our drive to build uh, better managed and better led organizations. Our speaker tonight is Bruce Carnegie Brown. He's chairman of Lloyd's of London and is vice chairman of Banco Santander Group. His career is impressive with leadership roles in companies such as JP Morgan, 3i Group, Marsh UK, and Money Supermarket. He's had an impressive career in leading very competitive organizations. Bruce is serving as CMI's president. His talk tonight shares his experience and thoughts which are echoed in CMI's commitment to support members in improving the organizations and address the continuous and ever marching forward uh, pressures of change. So please join me in welcoming Bruce to the stand. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for having me here this evening, and thank you very much for being here on what is a pretty wretched uh, evening outside, so m much appreciated. Um, uh, I think there are a few people who could argue with the statement I'm about to make, uh, which is that never has technological development had such a profound impact on society in such a short space of time. And that really drives the themes of what I'm going to talk about this evening. The so-called fourth Industrial Revolution, which is characterized by a convergence of computing, data, artificial intelligence, and universal connectivity, is affecting every aspect of our lives. Everything from transport and health to communication and business, it's affecting our politics and our confidence in institutions that we've grown accustomed to trusting over the last 400 years. This evening, I want to examine what these changes might mean for leaders and managers in the business world as they attempt to navigate their organizations successfully through an increasingly complex menu of choices, and what this means for many of you as you enter the world of work. 
What's at stake is nothing less than the survival of many of the organizations we've grown up with and some of us have worked for. React and adapt uh, to the changing environment and companies will thrive on a wealth of new business opportunities driven by deeper, more insightful relationships with customers. Fail to react and companies will slide into irrelevance. Managers and leaders are on the front of this change. They have a responsibility to build organizations that can thrive in the fourth industrial revolution. To do this, they need to understand what its implications are for them personally, for their teams, and for their organizations. And they need to ensure that they have the right skills to manage change effectively. To understand what the right skills are, we must first consider how the fourth industrial revolution is changing the world in which we live and work. At an organizational level, having a profound impact on how we live, work, and communicate. It's worth reflecting on just how much the digital revolution has already changed the world. Where 30 years ago the value of the largest companies listed on US stock markets was represented by tangible assets such as commodities, inventory, plant, and machinery, today's most valuable companies are backed by intangible assets of brand values, data, software, and digital platforms. In fact, as recently as 30 years ago, 70% of the market valuation of the S&P 500, the index of the 500 large stocks in the United States, was made up of tangible assets. Today, 70% is made up of intangible assets. And today in the UK, as you all know, 80% of our GDP is made up of services rather than goods. Where once it took generations to create global enterprises, it now takes only a few years. The good news for the entrepreneurs amongst you is that today it only takes a laptop and an idea to start a business, something that was almost impossible 30 years ago because before the advent of the internet, it was incredibly difficult to gain access to addressable markets. The bad news is that if you can start a, laptop, a business with a laptop and an idea, so can everyone else. So the competition is ferocious. And this direct access to markets has allowed new organizations to build new, efficient business models. Uber is the world's largest taxi company, but it owns no cars. Airbnb is the world's largest accommodation provider, yet it owns no hotels. Facebook is the world's largest publisher, and yet it owns no newspapers, magazines, or TV stations. New technology is giving consumers more choice and better service. For example, in insurance, my other world, telematics in cars, which are the black boxes which monitor your driving habits, enable underwriters to link premium prices to real-world, real-time driving behaviors, re reducing premium costs, at least for careful drivers. At Lloyd's of London, we now offer parametric insurance products that pay out automatically when an independent trigger is hit, shortening the time between the occurrence of a disaster and the payment of a claim. Where once we had to wait for the waters to subside or the fires to be put out before we could assess the damage and therefore value the claim, today we're using drones and satellite technology to identify a loss and try to pay claims more quickly. This increases confidence in the products we sell and improves our service to customers. Online aggregators like Money Supermarket 
and making it easy to compare and buy a whole range of products. While online shopping and delivery services, including now by drone, are already redefining convenience and redefining the retail experience. Lloyd's itself, a 330-year-old institution, is deploying technology, a little bit late, and data to build the world's most advanced insurance marketplace so that everyone who trades with us can access our products and services digitally. Sectors such as transport are redefining their role and impact on society. Advances in automotive safety through fourth industrial revolution technologies could reduce accidents and insurance costs, cut carbon emissions, reduce car ownership, and unclog the streets of cars. Advances in biomedical sciences could lead to healthier lives and longer lifespans. And the workplace, too, is being transformed. Entrepreneurship has been democratized. As I've commented, companies can be set up in an instant with a laptop and an idea and can be managed remotely. Job seekers have more career choices in more locations than ever before. New technology is enabling more flexible work patterns. Nine to five is gradually being replaced by more flexible hours. People are working independently and remotely, always connected with virtual meetings becoming the norm. Companies are giving more time to employees for parenting or caring. Some allow unlimited holiday, leaving it up to their staff to manage their time and to get the job done. It's not just the technology that's exerting change either. Society itself, of course, is having an increasing influence. There are more women in the labor market. The population is more diverse, meaning the employee pool is as well. And people are working into old age so that workforces now comprise four or even five generations working side by side. These are all positives, but as with any change, there are potential downsides in the fourth industrial revolution. Many of the new business models are based on automation and artificial intelligence, two technologies that are replacing human workers. Those price aggregator sites I mentioned have all but eliminated brokers from the value chain of buying motor insurance over the past 10 years. According to one study, up to 20 million manufacturing jobs around the world could be replaced by robots by 2030. If you include all the jobs, that figure rises to an impressive 800 million, and 2030 is just 11 years away. These numbers are based on the computer power of today, uh, of today's, uh, uh, of today. Google's recent claim that its prototype quantum computer had carried out a task that would have taken even the best classical supercomputers of the 1970s 10,000 years to complete gives a glimpse of the processing power yet coming into view. So we have to assume that it's not just administrative tasks that AI will be doing in the future. The pressure on the job market will be relentless and the challenge to have relevant skills will only intensify. Of course, these changes to the workplace also have potential negative impacts. A more distributed employment model could undermine workers' rights and security. Earlier this year, the UK Court of Appeal ruled that Uber should provide drivers with basic employment protections, including minimum wage and holiday pay, even though Uber considers them self-employed. The case is due to be reviewed soon by the Supreme Court, but in fact no one, including the law, is quite sure how the new world should work. How will low-skilled workers fare in a high-tech, data-driven workplace? And how will people cope with the overload of information they receive from their 24-7, 
connection to the internet. It's clear then that positively or negatively the fourth industrial revolution is having and will continue to have a huge impact on the companies we work for and how we work in them. And so what do these changes mean for managers who have to oversee the transition? This is something that the CMI has started to think about in its own research on the subject entitled Management 4.0, Developing the Next Generation of Managers and Leaders. And we hope to have that research finished um, and our thoughts published in the spring of next year. This looks at what demands ch changing technology, society, business, patterns of work, lifelong learning and leadership will require of managers and what skills and practices they will need to develop in order to survive and grow in this fourth industrial revolution. Will managers all need to be digital, tech-savvy, early adopters, or will it be the human skills, the things that robots can't do, that will be their source of competitive advantage? Things like creativity, judgment, critical thinking, and empathy. How will managers manage change, especially if their companies do not already possess the skills to operate tech-based business models? At Lloyd's, we face exactly these challenges. As part of a plan entitled The Future at Lloyd's, we're putting in place a strategic plan our own future because we don't have all the skills we need to build, run, and operate a digital marketplace. We need to recruit and develop expertise such as data architecture, engineering, data science, and design. But just as importantly, we need people to be clearer about where they add value in their roles. Most jobs combine elements of administration and process with more creative judgment-based activities. When administration is automated, many people worry their role will diminish and that they may ultimately lose their jobs. The more positive characterization of this is that it is an opportunity to spend more time on the things that matter most to your customers and where you can most add value. In the case of complex global commercial insurance risks, this is about analyzing the risks faced by customers, deciding which of them customers should accept, which they should reduce, and which they should buy insurance protection for. These sorts of tasks are where the real value lies. And by focusing more time and energy on these parts of our jobs, we can create more value for our customers and greater job fulfillment for ourselves. It is judgment, then, that is key to understanding our opportunity as humans in a world full of robots. Robotics and AI will analyze more and more data, give us more information that we need in order to make decisions, but robots are a long way from having the emotional intelligence necessary to understand the consequences of these, these decisions or replacing the most important forms of human interaction, things like love, empathy, caring, trust, and humor. So managers and leaders need to learn good judgment to make best use of the data that machines give us. These skills will be particularly useful as technology continues to race ahead of ethics. You only have to watch the struggles of Facebook as it tries to pick a pathway through the minefield of fake news, data privacy, and investor returns to see how tricky it is to get right and how your brand and reputation suffers if you get it wrong. There are other challenges for managers too. How do you manage in the gig economy when you're managing a shifting pool of remote workers as opposed to a traditional team of full-time employees in one office? Is the gig economy good or bad? Does it allow freedom and flexibility, or is it exploitative? 
should good managers and leaders embrace or avoid these forms of labor. With future organizational structures becoming flatter, managers will need new skills to motivate their teams and to develop engaged, committed, productive staff. They will need to put in place ways of developing their employees within much more fluid career pathways. And they will need to build teams that are comfortable with frequent and relentless change. That's a lot for managers to take on board. And while I have no doubt that the new generation of managers, many of you here tonight, are up to the task, the UK's inadequate approach to training managers is a potential spanner in the works. The worrying thing is that given how urgently we need to address the challenges posed by the fourth industrial revolution, much of management theory today is outdated. It was developed for the traditional hierarchical structures of the past, where employees were usually in a single location and working in a single work stream. This has been exacerbated by the fact that the training of managers has never been prioritized. In fact, CMI research shows that in the UK, we have a nation of accidental managers. Even today, more than 70% of employers provide little or no management training, with the result that four in five managers, around 2.4 million managers across the country, are promoted into leadership roles, but are then left to sink or swim when it comes to management. This lack of training is already affecting UK businesses negatively. The Bank of England believes the long, that the UK's long tail of unproductive businesses is partly explained by the country's poor quality of management. It affects the economy in other ways too. Poor management can damage health, uh, both mental and physical, and ill health costs this country about £100 billion annually. If these are the impacts of today's management skills gap, Think about the potentially negative impact on business and wealth creation if we are uh, to mismanage the development of technology, automation, AI, and new ways of working. And all of this is happening at a time when employers are investing less in training and development than ever before. There are two principal reasons for this. First, as markets and business activities move at an ever faster pace, there is an increasing need to find instant expertise to fill gaps or attack new opportunities. Employers can no longer afford the many months needed to get an employee up to speed, because in the digital world, time taken to get to market is a key differentiator between success and failure. This creates a strong bias towards recruiting people who already have qualifications and expertise, rather than investing in people with high potential. Secondly, companies are getting an increasingly poor return on their training investment because employees are less loyal. In the US, for example, the average tenure of workers aged between 55 and 64 is 10 years. But for workers aged 25 to 34, it's less than three years. Why bother investing in skills development when your employees will leave to work for the competition? It follows, therefore, that if employers aren't willing to invest in their workforces, then educational establishments and employees must take responsibility for their own training and development throughout their working lives. Lifelong learning will be a crucial differentiator if people are to remain relevant in an ever-changing landscape. When I graduated in the early 1980s, fewer than 15% of school leavers went on to graduate from university before entering the world of work. That meant that having a degree was a key differentiator in the competition for the best jobs and as close as you could come 
to having confidence in your employability for the rest of your working life. Today, nearly 50% of school leavers go on to graduate from university, and statistically, this reduces the differentiation conferred by an undergraduate degree. So if undergraduates are to leave university in debt by more than £30,000, they want to know they're going to be employable at the end of it. And this is where universities and management training bodies uh, like UE and Chartered Management Institute must show leadership themselves. Universities must demonstrate the value of their product and work harder to increase the value they offer to students in order to attract the most talented undergraduates. There are some signs that this is happening already with universities offering master's courses developed for the commercial world in areas such as business administration, marketing, leadership and entrepreneurialism. Organizations like CMI must continue to work with universities to help graduates and postgraduates develop the skills we need and employers want in our leaders of the future. CMI's 21st Century Leaders Report found that 70% of employers want all university students to have access to management, enterprise and leadership modules to improve their employability. CMI, along with other professional bodies, plays an important role in this regard by providing additional independent accreditation of degrees and by adding value to learners. Today, CMI is increasingly working closely with universities and business schools through professional recognition and development opportunities which carry value with employers. And I'm delighted to recognize that our partnership with UE is among the strongest that we have at CMI. Nationally, a, rec a record 60,000 learners will leave education this year with enhanced professional skills and qualifications that employers are demanding, uh, and thanks to CMI's dual accreditation of our undergraduate degrees. Our Future Leaders Program will support graduates and people starting out in their management careers uh, to continue their development, the development of their skills. And CMI's leadership is, in this area not only creates a virtuous circle between students, universities, and employers, but also begins a lifelong engagement between employees and education. This means employees can invest in new qualifications so they remain relevant in an increasingly competitive jobs market. It helps employees take control of their future, even if their employees, employers are less willing to provide in-house training. So what does this mean for those of you who are starting out in your careers? I've spent a lot of time talking about management, and perhaps unsurprisingly, given that I'm the president of the Chartered Management Institute, but in the workplace, the environment you will find will have largely been shaped by the managers of the businesses you work in. And I'm afraid some of them aren't very good. So be careful. Most people who resign leave because, their boss, because of their boss and not because of the company they work for. Bad managers will make you unhappy and stifle enthusiasm and creativity. Good managers, on the other hand, will support, stretch, and develop your talent. They will take a chance on you and give you greater responsibility and opportunity, perhaps more than you think you're ready for. Most of you will go on from being managed to being managers with responsibility for the working lives of others. Maybe you're a manager already. Either way, it's important to think about what sort of manager you want to be and to strive always to be better. What kind of culture do you want to be part of when you start working? At what, and what kind of culture will you create as you become one of the managers of the future. In my view, management has never been more important to the success of any enterprise, and it has never been more difficult to be a manager than it is today. 
Such is the complexity and depth of change facing organizations today. All managers will need not just to implement change, but to inspire that change too. In short, they will need to be leaders as well as managers. They will need to create a vision that helps people see where the organization is trying to get to and how their part of the puzzle fits into the whole picture. They will need to be innovative, comfortable in embracing change, but ready, even when things are working well, to embrace bigger challenges and newer ideas. They will need to be resilient to absorb the knocks and bumps along the way, all the time focused on achieving the end goal, even as others fall by the wayside. And importantly, they will need to develop relationships, building the loyalty and trust that they will need to rely on when the going gets tough. The command and control style of leadership characterized by the hierarchical leader, leadership of the past no longer has much of a place in modern management. Today's leaders need to be able to win hearts and minds and inspire confidence in employees, to create a common sense of purpose and a value proposition which addresses the challenges of multiple stakeholders. They need to be open and transparent, willing to fail but resolute in meeting the goals they've set. And this is backed up by research. Notwithstanding the leadership styles we see in politicians like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson today, analysis by consultancy firm Mercer shows a move away from bold, charismatic, ambitious leaders to more empowering, innovative, collaborative leadership styles is the way forward. Ask recruiters looking for the leaders of tomorrow, and they say that they're looking to find empathetic, humble leaders who are prepared to be vulnerable and who truly care about the employees and their other stakeholders. This points to the most important lesson, I think, of the fourth industrial revolution for 21st century management. In a soon-to-be world dominated by automation, algorithms, and robots, it's the soft skills, things like empathy, judgment, and trust, that will be the most highly valued and sought after. In other words, those qualities that make us human and differentiate us from machines. So even as you begin to develop technical skills in the workplace, never forget that it is your humanity which will ultimately help you succeed, not just in the workplace, but in society at large. And there's no better place to begin working on those soft skills than during your time at university. And if you choose to forget everything else I've said this evening, let me conclude with the words of that great guru of management philosophy, Dolly Parton who said, figure out who you are, then go and do it on purpose. If you can do that, you will surely succeed at whatever you choose to do. Thank you for listening. Bruce, thank you very, very much for that. That was excellent. Um, as I said earlier, we have a, a format that does allow for some Q&A. Um, I humbly and hopefully empathetically in, invite people to, 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 to raise their hands um, in the time-honored way to indicate if, 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 if they've got a question. But, but, but you won't be at all surprised that we are at one in your call for improved leadership and management training and, and lifelong learning. Um, it's exactly for those reasons that we do have the degree of association that we now have with the Chartered Management Institute, and long may it last. Um, so, I've got some questions here, but, but, but equally, please, in the time-honoured way, if we've got some, 
some hands up, then we can ask them. Uh, and we've got a microphone. So when the microphone comes to you, please take the opportunity to tell us who you are and what your affinity is, and then we can ask the question. Hi, Katie Yardley from the Defence Academy. Um, it strikes me that emotional intelligence is absolutely critical for this, and I would say that starts in school, not at university, but it is not part of the school's curriculum. Is there anything that the CMI is doing to sort of reach into schools or try and support that, or anything else you're aware of? Because I think it's something that private schools do quite well, but in the state sector, it's not on the curriculum, there's no money, so it's not really done. Um, actually, I don't think we do very much at, at, at school level. We do much more at university level. One of the things we have at CMI is a companions program. So people who've been reasonably successful as managers in their career uh, kind of join us as companions. And, and I think there's a virtuous circle in the kind of give back process uh, here in terms of sharing kind of what you've learned uh, and taking it back into, into places like schools. And one of the big things we have to do, frankly, even before you get to emotional intelligence, is try to persuade people that, that business is actually potentially a force for good in the world. A business attracts a lot of negative uh, criticism, um, uh, and it's, 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 it's quite commonplace at the moment to be pretty negative about, about business. And so those of us that, that are in that world and who believe that world is actually a force for good, a force for wealth creation, uh, a force that ultimately provides the wealth that we get, then get to spend uh, through taxation on on health, education, and other things, need to go out and advocate for that. And so I think, I think there, are, there are people who are very willing to give their time. If we could create the mechanic uh, and the link uh, into schools, I think you'd find people more than willing to, to spend time uh, doing that. But as I speak, we don't formally do that at, at CMI. Next question. There's one here in the moment, in the middle. Please, just even raising a finger makes it possible for me, for me to know where we can send the microphone. Hi, uh, Brett Sadler, UK Leadership Academy. Um, what we're finding is that uh, in the current marketplace where things are changing far more rapidly due to the technology, due to social media, due, due to faster uptake of new tre trends, um, the response in organisations is to try to uh, push down decision-making to flatten hierarchies. And what we've come across is... Uh, a new trend towards self-organization and self-management. If organizations transition to flattened self-organizing communities, what becomes the role of the manager in the 21st century? Well, I think the answer to that is the manager probably becomes more of a coach, but I absolutely agree with your direction of travel. A couple of years ago, I went to the... Uh, to the Hearst Corporation building in, in the West End and Hearst owns a number of magazines and there was a different magazine on every floor and, and I kind of grew up with um, Superman and the rather aggressive editor of the Daily Planet who was kind of in control of everything uh, that went on in the Daily Planet and today because uh, even if you're publishing a monthly magazine you're also publishing blogs on a daily basis to support uh, traffic into the magazine you cannot as the editor control everything content and layout in the same way as you could and so effectively all of those employees are out blogging all day long and 
you can only supervise that post facto in terms of whether they've done a good, a good job. You can't pre-edit in the way that you used to before. And I think that absolutely reinforces the point you're making about these self-managed individuals, even if they are notionally working in bigger employee-led organizations. And so you do have to have a different way of managing. And I think most of that actually comes down to coaching. In the communications department of, uh, of Lloyds of London, uh, you know, we think that their job is to communicate. I rented a, at the time of a, a digital guru to sit on the, the board of Lloyds, um, who's kind of a digital disruptor and rather angular, and I quite like him for that, um, constantly prodding us. And, and he says they're the communication prevention department because they control all communication and they stifle it and everything is re-edited before it goes out. And so blogs take three days to get on the internet and there's no kind of instant connection between the issue or the event and, and the audience. And you know, this, is, this is good for traditional organizations to understand why are we so paranoid about people communicating what we're doing. And of course it comes down to wanting to protect the brand uh, from risk. But you know, increasingly, there's a return element to taking risk. Um, and if everybody else is getting their stories out there very quickly, um, it's, uh, it, it's something we've got to do too. It's even in, in ways of doing business. So, you know, those of you that drive a car will know that if you crash your car, you're not supposed to say sorry, even if it's your fault, because you're prejudicing the discussion between insurance companies about whose fault it is and who pays the claim. Well, if you just lost five million pieces of data of your customer's data, and you have to wait to speak to your insurance company before you can go out and say, sorry, I will compensate you for that loss of data. In today's world, you've already lost the argument. The, the world moves so fast. And so you've got to give much more empowerment and permission to people to do this themselves. And I think actually that makes the individual's job much more interesting than being in a kind of command and control structure. But it also means that there has to be kind of accountability uh, and, and ways of measuring performance, even if it's after the event, in terms of how successful were you at what you were doing? Did you achieve the purpose of what, of what you intended to do? Did it have a different impact than, than you intended? Um, and, and, and so there are different management skills that, that have to come in. But I think they are still management skills. They're just different from the traditional ones that we experience um, historically. As a coach, I totally agree with you. Ah, good. Now <laughs> I'll land on the right topic then. <laughs> Please, uh, others. A little finger, a digit, will enable us to know where to take the microphone next. Proceed. Uh, Daniel Scalane, St. Peter's Hospice, uh, just around the corner. Uh, anyone wants to donate? Uh, yeah, charity. <laughs> um, you've touched on the... the Oops. Oops. Yes, it, it wasn't intended to cut out just because no. we put in a plug for the hospice. Uh, <laughs> it's not the BBC, is it? Um, so... Uh, We've touched on the two key issues of our time in terms of the uh, challenge between human skills and technological advancement. Do you think that the, the technological advancements are taking, taking place at such a pace that people are becoming more disconnected from their human selves, thus exacerbating the problem? So we become fixated on what technology we can do, what we can do with technology, whilst at the same time we've got teams of people around us that are kind of becoming further and further detached from people who are making decisions using technology? I, I think it's a risk. I, it's not a risk I really see today. I think the key is to have confidence that we can make technology our slave and not our master. Um, and there's undoubtedly people who will email somebody at the next desk rather than talking to them, which probably makes your point for you to some extent. Um, and it, it's worth kind of re-emphasizing that I'm only sitting at the next desk, you can come and see me to have the conversation directly. And people, as we know, hide behind much more aggressive uh, email uh, and, 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 and Twitter 
uh, output than they do and they would ever in, in a direct conversation with people. And so to some extent, you're right in that sense that technology then disintermediates the humanity of what would happen if we kind of got together. I think, you know, when I, if I look at it through a Lloyds of London um, uh, lens in terms of the challenge we face when we're trying to adopt technology, the technology itself, in my view, is reasonably de-risked today, even with where it was five or ten years ago. And much of the technology we need is not particularly complex. It ultimately becomes complex when you're trying to attach things like robotics and algorithms to the data. But, but much of the, the technology we need is about digital documentation and, and digital communication. Um, and, and today, you're not trying to install a system for 20 years in the way you would have six or seven years ago. So the, the risk of getting it wrong is much lower today than it was before. And the other problem when you're running a marketplace like, like Lloyd's is that when you introduce technology, everybody else had to use it. And of course, people were generally invested in different things. And so the cost of switching was high. And therefore, the resistance levels were high. And today, of course, when you're kind of in the cloud and using APIs, it's a plug and play system. You're probably only going to deploy it for three years before you upgrade it further. And so the actual technology decision is, uh, I think, hugely de-risked relative to where it was before. But I think what has increased in risk is, is, is people's um, unwillingness to get to grips with different ways of working. And that's the biggest impediment. And there's this, there's this sense, and I, I kind of referenced it in my, in my remarks, is that you know, most of us have a job that is part admin and it is part kind of more creative activity. And what people feel is that if you take the admin away from them, they're only doing half a job, and you're going to figure that out and fire them because they've only got half a job. And in truth, what we've got to do is turn that around and say, that half of the job that you were doing, we now want you to do it for your whole job. So go out and see twice as many customers or whatever it is that you do that is the value-added part of your, your role. And actually, that job is much more interesting than doing the paper-pushing piece of admin uh, that you were doing before. And so the fact that that can get taken away um, should be a positive. I mean, in Lloyd's, you see it in a different way. So, you know, there's a cult of the senior underwriter in the insurance market, and this is a, a guy, 25, usually a guy, I'm afraid, 25 or 30 years of experience. Um, and, of course, uh, he protects himself by the knowledge that's up in here because he's seen these risks before when a broker brings a risk to be priced at, at his desk. Um, he's using all of that knowledge and experience um, uh, to help price a risk. Now, a smart-ass 26-year-old comes with a spreadsheet and an algorithm and says, you've got the answer wrong, here's what we should be doing, is a bit of a threat to that 50-year-old. So again, you, you have this, uh, th this defensive activity in people who are nervous about the implications of these changes. But the, certainly for the younger ones of you in the room, I think this is incredibly empowering and incredibly energizing, um, and it's, it's a great time to be alive. Amanda, just wait for the mic. Hi, Bruce. Um, my name's Amanda McClay. I work here at Huey, our senior HR business partner. I was really interested about what you're saying about the, the skills we're looking for these days from leaders and managers. So I was just interested in reflecting back on your career, what you've learned most from either very good managers and leaders or perhaps not so good managers or leaders. I think what we, what we see a lot is learned behaviours. Well, you know, on balance, I've been very lucky to have um, more good managers uh, look after me than, than bad managers. And I think, of course, when you start out in the world of work, you don't really know what, what one or other is. You have a manager, and you sort of believe that's the way management works. Until you've had two or three of them, you don't begin to make judgments about the good or the bad. And, and I certainly feel incredibly lucky to have had managers who've probably, frankly, over-promoted me, pushed me into opportunities I probably wasn't ready for, uh, been willing to take a, a chance on me. And that, that is the characteristic of a good manager. Um, 
I, I had an appalling manager at one point, and I slightly kicked myself for not having more resilience. And so uh, an insurance business I was uh, uh, running in the UK about 15 years ago, uh, uh, the global parent got into trouble uh, with um, effectively rigging uh, insurance quotes in the United States, and I was running the business in the UK. Um, and most of the senior managers in the US had their heads cut off as a result of that by the regulators um, and, and the lawyers. Um, and, and I was left kind of on my own a bit in the UK, uh, trying to make sure the business survived what was a, a reasonably existential threat. And, and it came not long after the demise of Arthur Anderson, where you saw the implosion of an organization that had a really good reputation uh, uh, trashed um, in a very short period of time. And so it felt like an existential uh, a threat. And actually, although it was incredibly tough, it was one of the most exhilarating parts of my career because I, I was making it up as I went along and there wasn't anybody in New York who had a head on to, to kind of tell me I should be doing differently. Um, and then when they started to reimpose control, they appointed this idiot, that's my polite word, um, <laughs> To, to manage the business uh, globally. And, and just as an anecdote, uh, you know, I would go for monthly meetings in New York. Um, and uh, when I got off uh, the plane in New York, which is typically taking the last plane out of London, so you were getting to your hotel sort of uh, at 9 or 10 o'clock at night uh, in New York for a meeting starting at 8 o'clock the following morning, there'd be something in, in reception um, saying, could you please speak on the following subject uh, at tomorrow's management meeting with no kind of prep around it. And so happily, of course, when you go off to New York, you tend to wake up pretty early. So you spend the first two or three hours before you even get to the meeting um, working with the guys in London to try to put the report together and get the data and, uh, into the document. Then we get to the meeting and he say, no, I'm not going to deal with that agenda at all today because we haven't made our monthly numbers. So we're all going to sit in this room until we figure out how to make the monthly numbers. And you say, it's not really the job of the senior management team to deliver the monthly numbers in the next three days. It's our job to make sure we don't miss them next month or the month after. Anyway, this kind of got my goat and I quit. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, you have to be... Uh, reasonably privileged to be in a position where you can quit because uh, a lot of people take risk when they do that and, and, I, and I wasn't in quite such a risky position but but they fired that guy nine months later and, and some of my learning there is actually if I can figure out he's an idiot other people will eventually too um, and if I had a bit more resilience maybe I'd still be there now I've gone off and done different things since and so I haven't looked back on that particularly but but I think resilience is a big part of what you sort of need to learn uh, in life and I I think not all of us are quite as resilient as we need to be. There are lots of lumps in the road. Um, and, uh, and I think sometimes just managing through that is, is, is a big part of it. Thanks for that personal experience, Bruce. Um, there's someone there with a, with a beret. Who... Uh, hi, just, uh, Mr. Bruce. Uh, firstly, thank you for your speaking, and I learned a lot. Uh, I'm Carol. I come from China now. I'm a third-year student. Uh, with business management in UV, and uh, could you please give 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 me and uh, as a student in in business uh, area, could you please give us some suggestions and how to perform well in the um, business graduates? Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, that's a very big question, and lots of people work at that most of their lives without really figuring out the answer. Uh, so, uh, you know, let me throw some things out there and see. I mean, the first thing, going back to Dolly Parton, you know, she is a management guru. Um, <laughs> there's a big part of this is figure out who you are. 
right? Because actually what you need to have is a frame of reference for everything that you do. And this is to do with the things that you believe uh, and the things that you trust in and structures for the way you analyze data as you receive it. And if you can build a really good foundation around things like that, then it doesn't really matter what problem gets thrown at you. You have a, a toolbox through which to analyze uh, 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 this information and to get to a decision. And so first and foremost, this is about figuring out where, where you stand. What, what, you know, what are your ethics? What are your beliefs? Um, what's the foundation that anchors what you think is your sense of justice or your sense of balance in the world? And, and I would certainly start there. Secondly, as you get more practical, you know, it's a very easy thing to say is that as you look at places to have careers, you want to go into an industry that's growing, not an industry that's declining. It's much easier to succeed in a growth environment than it is uh, in, a, uh, in a declining environment. I mean, some of the best managers in the world work in turnaround situations, but it's a lot bloodier than in a situation where you're trying to grow the top line, bring more resources in, and of course, as you bring more resources in, uh, hopefully your boat floats uh, higher up that, that, that pecking order as you go. And so, as you think about the places you want to work, um, uh, growth is clearly, to my mind, um, a sort of no-brainer in terms of where you need to orient yourself. The second piece is, while you have to have technical skills as you come in, what I was trying to say in my remarks, I think you've got to keep investing in the soft side of your skills too. So my view is that in professional and financial services management, and we talked about 80% of our GDP in this country now being services, they do not reward management. They reward people who deliver business. And so most managers are sort of player coaches. They're out there doing, doing business. Um, and as you get more senior, obviously, your ability to do bigger, uh, more complex transactions uh, grows. But my point is that even if you are doing that, it's worth and you don't think you get paid for it, it's worth investing in your management skills. And sometimes that's taking time out of where you could be out with your, your wife or partner or whoever it is uh, at the end of the day. But, but ultimately, that will differentiate you because the people you work with will respond to your ability to learn how to... And manage them ends up feeling like a kind of senior subordinate relationship, but how to engage with them, how to get the best out of them, how to know when they're having problems, uh, how to know that, you know, although they're your employee, they're somebody else's daughter or wife or mother, and they have a whole bunch of other issues in their lives. And if you, if you can be somebody who is empathetic around those issues, even as you're trying to drive the next sales target, I think it really differentiates you. Many people, because they don't get paid for it, don't do it. Um, and as a result, there's a poverty of management ambition uh, around the management of people. And it's, it's very obvious when you go into workplaces, when you see this in terms of people's level of engagement and happiness in the environments in which they work. Was there a question down there? Yeah. Come to you in a moment. Hi, my name is Jenny Wagstaff, I work in HR, so I'm sort of interested in terms of, you know, the fourth um, revolution, industrial revolution. What do you think the key focus it, it should be for HR to make organisations successful? Well, my own uh, issue at the moment, uh, which I think is therefore the answer to your question, because it's my own issue at the moment, is, is culture. Um, and, you know, at Lloyd's, we have a, we have a uh, I hope you haven't seen any of this, but it's out there, um, we, we have been called out on, on a poor culture. And Lloyd's, as I say, is a, is a marketplace. There are some 50,000 people engaged in the marketplace. Not all of them work for the corporation of Lloyd's. They work for companies that work in the marketplace. And so uh, my direct ability to manage and supervise them is, is not a direct line of sight one that they would be if they were an employee of mine. But it stems from two places. One, um, we don't have enough senior women in the workplace, and so there's a gender gap. Uh, and that is true, of course, of many 
uh, organizations. Um, but, you know, we started in a really bad place. I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you that until 1973, you could not be a woman and work in the insurance marketplace in London. So it, th this is a, a catch-up game that we've had to have. The second issue is that there's a drinking culture in the London insurance industry which we need to get rid of. And, you know, the banking uh, industry and the asset management industry has largely got rid of this. Um, and I think there's a correlation between drinking at lunchtime and bad behaviors by the time you, you get out in the evening. Some people have tried to deny that, but my observation would be that there's a correlation of one between those things. And, you know, we have people making some quite difficult decisions in the office in the afternoon uh, around complex risks, and they need to be absolutely competent when they do that. And if you've had a couple of pints at lunchtime, I don't think you're on your best uh, game. So, you know, in simple terms, I need to get rid of a drinking culture and I need to do better around gender. And that's even before we get to other forms of diversity uh, across the market. And so you cannot, I think, tell people that you're interested in modernizing your business if you're not also modernizing your culture. And I think that's the place where HR has the most to play. And a lot of it is about encouraging people to speak out, call out. So I'm a regulator as well. It's not something I enjoy doing at Lloyd's, but I, I have regulatory powers. So I can shoot people when I find wrongdoing. That is not a problem for me. But I need to find the wrongdoers. And what happens in the commercial world is that when businesses find wrongdoing, they rush to a compromise agreement where everybody hushes it up. The person probably leaves uh, their place of work, but it's never called out, and so it's not addressed. But if you do engagement surveys, and I, we conducted the biggest one we've ever done at Lloyd's this summer, 6,000 of our 40 or 50,000 uh, marketplace um, um, uh, 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 professionals responded to it they clearly threw up an issue that they said, uh, one, we don't feel able to speak out. Um, two, if we do speak out, we're not listened to. Uh, uh, three, there is a distinction in the way men and women get treated in the marketplace. Four, there is inappropriate behavior, including poor kind of sexual conduct as much as uh, the use of alcohol in the marketplace. And a lot of people said, well, you're not being terribly smart because you're having a survey and you have to publish the results, then, then everybody will know and you'll get hit with it. But I think in the modern world, that's what you've got to do. You've got to put it out there, create a baseline, and then figure out ways of measuring improvement. And, and what gets uh, measured gets managed. Um, and we now have to engage on a very active program to try to make this a really inclusive place to work, particularly if we want to have the best talent come and work in the market. And the best talent is always going to be able to choose where they want, where they want to work. And so culture, for me, uh, is the key issue for, for, for HR. Bruce, uh, Sarah, there's a lady here in the second row. After that, we've probably got time for just one more, so if, if you want to ask a question, you need to get your finger in the air so I can actually see you. Please go ahead. Hi, good evening, Bruce. Uh, my name's Caroline Palmer. I run a business called Raising the Bar, team building with sheep. Um, <laughs> so a lot of our clients um, are, we've got the big four, um, three of the big four that uh, accounting firms that work with us and, uh, and investment banks, et cetera, et cetera, a whole cross range of companies. Uh, one of the barriers that sometimes teams will say they, they can't invest time in, in team building, external team building, is that they're too busy, which sounds really bad. And the point they're making is that, that you know, they're now doing exactly what you were saying earlier, and is that they're doing the admin as well as the creative role. I mean, particularly some of the big four, we already know they're looking to get rid of thousands and thousands of secretaries and things. I just wondered how on earth you felt from the sort of CMI perspective, how you feel management leaders are going to be able to uh, invest that time when, in actual fact, they're taking away the very 
<laughs> the very support system that is, yeah, it's taking away that support system. I just wondered how you feel in that. I don't know if there's something that we can be saying to them to, and to help them. Well, you know, I, I, I think one of the obvious ways, of course, is, is digital connectivity. So people can take these programs in their own time, at their own pace, uh, in their own space, and they don't have to kind of free up a specific time to join a bunch of other people. But to the, to the question that came before, we've got to be careful about not losing the humanity of the interaction with other people, which is a big part, of course, about uh, learning about these uh, and sharing these kinds of experiences. To me, it really sort of comes back to management prioritizing this in terms of both a budget, you've got to put money behind training and, and development, uh, and if you're going to put money behind it, you better put the time behind it to allow people to do these things. And I think if people are arguing they don't have the time, I suspect they're also challenged on the budgets they have for this, um, and they're probably working in, in, an, in an environment where people aren't motivated, um, uh, the, the organization isn't motivated to develop its people. And I, and I think there are a lot of those out there, which is why I come back to the point that ultimately it's kind of we ourselves who have to manage our own careers, and if we can't get it at work, we need to get it somewhere else and find a way to do that. Um, and the truth of the matter, of course, is that often that's putting your own home time in. I have a, a different anecdote for you. My, my, my wife's godson um, is a, a gym instructor. He's about 26, 27 years old, and he desperately wants to be an osteopath. And he failed most of his exams because he's incredibly dyslexic. But he phoned the School of Osteopathy um, and, um, and said, would you take me on? Um, and because he's got a day job, he effectively does this over weekends. And he lives in Exeter. I live in London and the School of Osteopathy is in London and he phoned up my wife and said, could he come and stay um, every other weekend for this, um, for this osteopathy course? And um, she of course said yes, uh, as a good godmother should, um, uh, but she forgot to say, how long is it for? Um, <laughs> and it turns out it's for five years. <laughs> he comes to visit us every other weekend for five years. Uh, we're in year three, uh, as it happens. Um, but, so the point of the story really isn't about uh, us suffering him every other weekend and, uh, and you know, we, we have enough space to do that. The point of the story is really he's had to get out extracurricularly and be committed and passionate about what he wants to do to get a qualification that hopefully stands him in good stead. And you have to be full of admiration for somebody who's willing, willing to do that. Thank you for that. This is the last one, I think, coming up. Yeah, no pressure on that one. Um, make it a good one. <laughs> make it a good one. I'll try. Um, I'm Jordan Hodge. I'm a lecturer of mental health here at, at UWE. Um, really good um, speech. I think it does resonate a lot. And my question for you is, in the NHS, in healthcare, uh, we do find a lot of um, people who go into managers uh, were previously good clinicians but doesn't necessarily make good managers. Um, you know, we love you as a clinician, so please would you step up into a band seven management role, please, please. Um, yet they don't have any management experience or seek to gain any or, or have any opportunity to gain them. What is your view in a ever pressure world of, of healthcare, how we try and inspire and train our future NHS leaders? Send them here. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's an incredibly difficult question for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, the first is most clinicians are not really motivated by um, uh, KPIs and spreadsheets and productivity. They're, they're in the world of, of being doctors and nurses for other reasons, and they want to give of their, their best. And so uh, the motivation issue is not a small thing when you think about people becoming managers. 
uh, in one part it's similar. As I said before, 70% of anybody in the UK is an accidental manager. They get put into a job that they're not, they're not trained for. But I think the gap between desire for the job and ability to do the job is probably wider in the NHS than, than anywhere else. It is, of course, huge in its own right, too. So an incredibly difficult thing to get your arms around, I think. The NHS is the third largest employer in the world after the Chinese army and the Indian Railway. Um, and, you know, so is it manageable? The other problem is, of course, it's free at the point of delivery. And so there is enormous and unlimited demand. And trying to manage that when you don't have demand structures that you're able to control the flow, which in a typical business would be about moving price around uh, to... Uh, to uh, optimize the, the, the demand uh, equation is, is also something that almost makes it, I think, impossible to do. You then don't pay them anything, uh, and so, you know, question whether it's really motivating to get involved in it. Managers typically, I may be watching too much casualty here to, to, to be accurate, <laughs> but, but are treated like second-class citizens in the hospital because yeah. the doctor is king. Um, and so, you know, how motivating is it to want to be in that career path in the, in the National Health Service? Notwithstanding, of course, that the purpose of this thing is phenomenal. I mean, there isn't a better purpose to be aligned with uh, anywhere, I don't think. Um, and so I, I'm not sure I, I mean, I, I, would, I would shy away from being uh, offered and accepting a job in the National Health Service <laughs> for, fear of, for fear of failure. I think it's an incredibly hard thing to do, and I fully applaud people who, who, who take it on. And, and, and the hours are unreal, right? Uh, yeah, uh, hours. Health doesn't, doesn't do nine to five. Um, uh, so um, kind of God bless them, but it, it, it's a challenge. For more information on the Bristol Lectures series, including details on how you can attend, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures.